everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Jim Marty here in beautiful Longmont, Colorado, taping once again from my beautiful barn, looking at a perfect summer afternoon here, about 90 degrees and blue sky. So welcome from Colorado. I've got my partner, Larry Mishkin, up in Chicago. Hi, Larry. Jim, how you doing? Uh, Larry Mishkin from the Urban Law Group. And yeah, uh, I'm once again up in lovely Northbrook, Illinois. Uh, we're also having a beautiful summer day. And once again, uh, all things being equal, I would much rather be in the barn. So, uh, you know, you, you got me there again. But just so that our, our listeners do know, the third week in September, I will be in the Denver area uh, for some Urban Law Group business for a few days. And my plan, Jim, as I think you and I have discussed, is to stay over that Friday night and on Saturday make my way back out to the barn again and uh, have an opportunity to tape another show out there. So I'm looking forward to that already. Good. And we're looking forward to seeing you again. And said our next soiree is going to be we get three fish shows at Dick's Sporting Arena with camping. I think in the, this is year 11. And in those 11 years, I think I might have missed one or two shows. So it's a big treat for That's us great. to get the three shows in and uh, really enjoy fish. So we'll dive into that in future shows. But today we've got a pretty yep. full agenda. So, Larry, why don't you kick it off with um, some of the things that uh, you'd like to talk about today? Yeah, Jim, thanks. You know, we've been focused so much on, uh, um, you know, all of these jam bands, and, and rightfully so. But every now and then it's nice to kind of take a step back from it and see what else is going on in the world of music. and. And actually, this does have implications for Deadheads, and I don't know that Fish was going to be involved, but certainly Dead and Company was going to be involved, and that was Woodstock 50. And, you know, the, the word that is now out there is that it, it's, it's officially closed, officially off. Michael Lang has said that, that it's done, uh, apparently in its final in its final last gasp, it was going to be a free concert at Meriwether Post Pavilion, uh, just outside of D.C., where, for whatever it's worth, the Dead and the Garcia Band have played amazing shows. It just ran out of steam. And it's really kind of funny, and not funny in the sense that I obviously feel bad for him and for you know, people who really wanted to try and recreate it. But, you know, they had Woodstock a few years ago, and they've had a couple since the original, and one of them in 99, or you know, I think it was, you know, they, had, they had problems with riots and people getting hurt and just a big mess. And Woodstock was like this once-in-a-lifetime thing. It wasn't Bonnaroo because there was only one stage, right? And it wasn't any of these other outdoor festivals that we have because it had never been done before on that level. And nobody really knew what to expect or what to do. And by all rights, it never should have taken place. And the fact that it did and the fact that it actually happened is amazing. And what just drives that point home more is that here we are 50 years later with all the modern technology and everything and so much easier to just send a text and they have to try and get somebody on a phone call or and they can't pull it off couldn't pull right. it off. And to me, that just makes what happened in 1969 that much more special. What do you think? Well, you certainly have listened to it. I was too young. I was about 13 in 1969. I actually uh, was a paper boy and delivered the Boston Globe with the pictures of Woodstock on the front page of the Sunday paper. So I have some memories of, of Woodstock. Funny. Certainly listened to the album many times. The Who had a good performance. I think yeah. Woodstock really wasn't that great musically just because of the logistics, the mud, the rain, the people having to walk for miles and abandon their cars. But it really, I think it was an awakening of um, a political movement of the baby boomers looking around at all 500,000 of them and said, hey, 
we're a this is our generation now we can take the helm and take the reins politically and we gave birth to a lot of different uh, political movements and still took six years after that to wind down the vietnam war in any event i think it was more for me it was a political awakening of the baby boomers of which i'm smack dab in the middle of uh, now us baby boomers are all aging late 50s and 60s and 70s as i tell my millennial kids i say you know it's your world now we've had our run so you're right um but i i i, I will say this i think you're right that you certainly uh, if you want to talk about musical performances at woodstock you know the, the dead themselves often refer to their own woodstock experience as their maybe their worst performance ever i guess in all fairness to them they were playing on a stage in the middle of a rainstorm in the middle of a thunderstorm and Bobby used to tell the story that every time they approached their microphones to sing, they would get an electrical shock. Um, right. So, you know, I, I, I guess knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm willing to cut them some slack on it. But it's great in the, in the uh, Woodstock movie. There's just one scene where Jerry gets off the helicopter or something. He's wearing a poncho and he smiles and he waves and everybody in the audience claps. But on the other hand, it, it, it needs to be pointed out that there were really some magical music performances at Woodstock. And you mentioned The Who, and I think their Woodstock performance is one of the best they ever did. But certainly Richie Haven's opening up where he just got up and they said, we need somebody. And he ran up on stage and improvised for an hour and played. It was tremendous. You know, the Jimi Hendrix set at the very end of Woodstock is fantastic. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, where they step up on the stage and they tell everyone it's only the second time they've ever played there. And they're really, really scared. It, some of the music there is, is, was really magical, but I guess at the end of the day, right, the point is that it, it really takes a lot to pull these things off. So, I mean, kudos to the folks at Bonnaroo and Lock-In and the millions of other places that, that managed to get these things done every year. But to me, the poster child, and it is one of the greatest rock posters of all time, for this type of music will always be Woodstock. And I, I, there's, a, there's a, a, a little part of me that, just again is it really is it's almost like poetic justice that it worked out this way because it just emphasizes how one in a million that was that it all came together the way it did yeah it really was it really did change things it changed people's vision i think the movie was very powerful too because that's something but when that came out a couple of years later i was more 15 16 years old I remember going to the movie theater yep. and seeing that and being very impressed with the movie Yep. All you young musicians out there, make sure you record all your shows and video all your shows. You never know. You might be famous someday. And if you have not bought the original Woodstock album, it, it was a, it was a, I think it was a three three or four disc vinyl set. Um, but you can get it certainly in um, on uh, a CD. or it, You have to buy it. it it's, it's a must for any classic rock and roll music collection just to be able to play through it and and hear the little snippets from all the amazing bands that played, and certainly to hear, you know, the, the versions of the songs that they did at that time. And it's really like owning a piece of history. And it was actually funny in my family. We had a babysitter who may have actually been at Woodstock, and you know, so we, we as you know, I was ten years old, so I was just getting old enough to kind of understand a little bit about what was going on. And we used to tease her, and she she had the album and she brought it over. My mom didn't like it because there's a song on there where they spell out uh, the F word in the middle of the song. He gets the whole crowd to get behind him and chant. And he didn't think that was really appropriate for us. But then when we graduated high school, he bought us a copy so we could have one for the house, figuring we were old enough now. It's a great, great album. So I would recommend it to anyone who wants to 
some. I believe you're referring to the country Joe and the fish. One, two, three, four. What are we fighting for? Yep, exactly. You've nailed it on the head. And just as an aside of what, again, you know, it's an iconic cover on that album of, of the couple standing there, presumably in the morning on the last day, listening to Jimi Hendrix play his set. And they've got like a, a really beat up old cotton sleeping bag slumped over them. And apparently they found the couple <laughs> and they're, you know, 50 years later and they, they were married. I don't even remember the whole story, but, you know, only in today's modern day and age. Yeah, I think that's a true story that they ended up. Right. You know. Having a very long-term marriage. Yep, and you know, we all grow up wondering, who is that couple? And boom, now we know. So here's what I really wanted to talk about with you today, Jim. I'm seeing this a lot with my dispensary clients and even some of the manufacturing clients because there's such a wide array of, of ways to consume cannabis these days. The question really becomes, what's the most effective? Certainly, what's the safest? And there's a crowd, of course, that really wants to know just which is going to have the most highest psychoactive effect on them. And I thought that we might start off today, right? Because there's there's two basic ways to do it, right? One way to do it is inhale it through your lungs, whether you're vaping or dabbing or combusting. And the other way is to, you know, introduce it to your system, typically through food or through some sort of liquid, whether it's a tincture or a drink or something like that. But I wanted to start at least this week, and we can talk about the rest of it maybe next week, is to talk about vaping, dabbing, and burning. And, you know, and maybe in terms of, which is the safest, which is the least safest, you know, which which will have the best, the, the biggest effect on you, which won't. And generally where we see those three different types of, uh, of, uh, of consuming marijuana going, what do you think? Yes, very important subject because there's still people out there, I call them the prohibitionists, who don't believe marijuana should be legal, even though it does seem like it will be inevitable at this point. And, you know, they're very concerned about concentrates because they can be, you know, 80, 90 plus. THC based. Um, but I say it's, it's like um, beer and whiskey. Whiskey is made out of beer mash. And, you know, you don't drink as much whiskey as you do beer. And I think people are the same way about dabbing and concentrates, waxes and shatters, which are now fully 50% of legal sales, whether it's medical or um, adult use, fully 50% of sales in states like Nevada are um, concentrates. So it's something that's here to stay. I think the biggest loser of all the, when it comes to concentrated products, is the cigarette companies. So few people smoke today. Today, the young people, and this I, I heard about a survey of high schoolers, very few high schoolers smoke cigarettes today, but many of them vape. And it might be nicotine, it might be CBD, it might be THC. So today, if you want to you know, quit smoking cigarettes, you have so many alternatives to cigarettes between, like I said, you have vape pens that get you high. You have vape pens that don't get you high. You have vape pens that have nicotine products in it. So my understanding, I don't have any statistics at the tip of my fingers, is that the large tobacco companies are shipping far fewer cartons of cigarettes today than any time in the past. So if people do want to quit cigarettes, there's a whole array of alternative products out there for you. Huh. You know, for me, the question comes down to, well, it's two basic things. What's the most convenient and or discreet, and what's the impact uh, that I'm ultimately going to get for it? I mean, I start off recognizing that it's three completely different systems, right? One involves flour, one involves oil that's already been extracted from the flour, and one involves the extract itself. Right. My personal experience shows that the extract, uh, when dabbing, 
has the most profound effect. And I guess that would make the most sense given the THC levels in some of those extracts. There's a lot of studies being done out there on this, and there's actually one or two people who I would like to reach out to in the future to possibly come on our show and talk about this, because I've heard some of them speak, and they have very interesting uh, ideas on what exactly it is that we should or should not be doing. And, you know, I've heard some criticisms for the whole idea behind dabbing, and it was kind of explained to me that dabbing is the equivalent of freebasing marijuana. Right, that you're 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 taking it up to such a high temperature, uh, you put the extract in there, which is already at such a high THC level, it instantly dissolves or vaporizes. You breathe it right in, it goes in, and the way it was explained was that it overwhelms the cannabinoid receptors in your brain, so to the point where it's you know a lot of people one or two dabs and you're you might be finished for the night as a result. Now, for some people, I guess that's a great way to go because if- you're going to be finished for a while. And that's how it was explained to me, too, is the ultra-high temperature that really releases the THC to where one or two hits off of a dabbing system will get you higher than you probably want to be. Right. Exactly. And so that, you know, there has to be some sort of a balance there. And that, that's the part about that makes me concerned. Now I go to the other extreme for me, and the other extreme is vaping. While I think that the vaping technology and the overall quality of the vaping products has improved significantly even just over the last few years, I find it to be very convenient, very, very discreet, and, you know, very kind of perfect for if you're at a wedding and, you know, it's somebody on your wife's side who you had to go to as an obligation, but you're not so happy to be there. (laughs) A vape pen can work wonders in that situation. I was going to say, very discreet, very easy to travel with. Yes. My experience with them is when you first get them and, and, and unwrap them, uh, they're very good, but over time they lose their potency. So even if there's like a little bit of oil that you can see left in the cylinder, it may not have the effects that it did when you first opened it. Well, I think that's true. And I can say this, that it does not ultimately get me high in the way that smoking flour does now. But I think we're going to see, Jim, and you know, you and I are I'm with you 100% on that. We're from the same generation, and, and we're from a generation that when, when you know people first started using marijuana, <laughs> You didn't have many other choices short of taking a bong hit or smoking a joint, but however you were doing it, you were combusting it unless you had some friends who tried to grind it up really well and mix it into brownie sauce and make a brownie batter and make you uh, some, some homemade brownies. Although then, right, it would always inevitably all wind up in two of the 10 brownies and two people would be out of their minds and the other eight would be like, eh, it doesn't really happen. Yeah. And we typically stuck to, we stick, typically stuck to smoking and that's always the way for me. And when I take a hit, I know that I, I, I know what I'm getting. I'm going to get something right away. I know how much it's going to more or less be for me. I know that I can handle it. While you know, I acknowledge that in the long run, there may be ways better than drawing hot smoke into your lungs. I do keep up on the research involving you know, smoking marijuana. And while nobody's saying that it's the best thing to do, it certainly doesn't get the same type of warnings that you find with tobacco users which I take to heart and is primarily due to the, the, the beneficial and the medicinal properties of marijuana. True. And there's a whole school of thought out there and there's not the research to back it up yet, but we need to, this industry needs R and D desperately, but there's a whole school of thought out there that smoking marijuana is actually good for you. Oh yeah. The Israelis are leaders in that. And, and that's really something that we can do one day as well, I think is to talk about, you know, the, the, the healthful claims that we get from marijuana and what they can really do. So, well, I think that, and of course it goes without saying that if you're, if you're combusting or burning, 
that's the least discreet way possible. Well, maybe not, because if you're dabbing, it typically involves some sort of an open flame. So that's kind of difficult to pull off in the in the open as well. But uh, mm-hmm. it, it's always kind of heartening to see when you go into a, a dead or a fish show that there's still a decent enough percentage of the crowd that's uh, smoking a joint or something like that. That it, I don't feel too ancient yet, but I, I'm afraid, Jim, we're going to see a day not too far down the road where you know, flour is going to kind of be relegated to the back of the store and, you know, the old folks will make their way back there, uh, you know, like they do for the easier to use electronic appliances today. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people that say, you know, in the future, people won't really smoke flour. They'll just be smoking their bait pens and concentrates. So, well, very good discussion. Let's turn the page and talk some um, for the last segment of the show here about some musical things. You had some ideas, Larry. I did, Jim. And, you know, this is coming on the heels of what we talked about last week with the Tedeschi Truck Show at Red Rocks. And when we were talking about it, I was really kind of torn because the purpose at that time was to be discussing the Tedeschi Truck's performance. But it's almost impossible to talk about a show at Red Rocks without actually discussing the rocks themselves. And I'm going to let you get into a little more detail in that in one minute because in the 10 or 15 minutes I was able to share with you, you know, I learned all sorts of great things that I didn't know like that the rocks had names. But for me, it's kind of a special experience. Right when we pulled into the parking lot, I remembered I hadn't been here in 35 years, but you, from the parking lot you look up and way up in the distance you can see the you can see where the people are sitting and it, I have no idea what the elevation difference is between the parking lot and the and where you go up to, to enter the place, but it I realized that age can all of a sudden become a real factor here, or at least physical ability and plenty of cab drivers who were only too happy to drive us up to the top of the hill. And somehow I felt that would be cheating if I didn't make the walk myself. And then, you know, you walk in and, and the view is just, it's unbelievable. So give us some history, Jim. How was it built? When was it built? What are the names of the rocks? Tell us about this place. Sure. Glad to. So I've been there many, many times. And I was fortunate enough, I had a hobby job in my 40s, so 20 years ago now, where I was a music reviewer for our local newspaper. So I got there many times and found out many things about it. It was always a natural amphitheater. And there's some old pictures. There's a museum there where you can see some old pictures where the uh, the benches are not there. It's just an open, natural amphitheater where as Denver developed in the 1880s and 1890s, there were musical performances there, a lot of classical musical performances. And then the actual benches and finishing of it, it was a Depression-era Roosevelt Civilian Conservation Corps project. And I believe it was finished during World War II, I believe 1944, where the modern Red Rocks as it exists today opened. And yes, I I love giving people tours of Red Rocks. There's rocks everywhere. It's not just the big rocks that are make up the stage and the sides of red rocks, but that geological formation actually goes all the way down to, well, it's basically from Wyoming all the way down to south of Colorado Springs. You can see those upturned rocks that were created by you know, thousands and thousands of years of geological pressure pushing those rocks up at an angle. But the rock immediately behind the stage is stage rock. And I think stage rock has a lot to do with the sound at Red Rocks because it obvious is it's not going anywhere but forward. Uh, you're not going to lose any sound out the back with that huge solid rock behind the musicians. And then up on one side is Ship Rock, 
which kind of looks like the Titanic sinking. And then on the other side is Constellation Rock, which has great views of the constellation and stars if you look up above it when it gets dark. So that's some of the history of Red Rocks. And I think some people have heard me say, I can't get to Red Rocks early enough. So many of the shows are general admission. So if you get there early, you can end up down in the, the first or second row. Although in recent years, some of the big acts have figured out they could sell those seats as reserved. But back in the day, we would get up there. And I still do this for um, Phil Lesh. I saw him in May at Red Rocks. And um, so what I like to do is cook breakfast. And then as soon as breakfast is done and the dishes are cleared up, hop in the car with a packed lunch and head to Red Rocks. Sit there for the afternoon, get your place on the stairs. We play cribbage. Uh, we have a picnic lunch. We have lots of people to talk to and the hours fly by. And then towards the late afternoon, we'll start to put our chairs and cribbage board and cooler back in the car. And if I get there early enough, I get my favorite parking space right at the bottom of the stairs. And um, oh, wow. so then, and then we'll, we have what we call runners and mules, runners and mules. And so if you have a backpack, they, they're going to check your backpack. It slows you down. So we'll push some of the younger people. My sons have had this experience many times, and they get up front with a blanket, and they just run like deer after they get through security and then throw their blanket down to get a good spot down low, preferably in the center where the sound is the best. So those are some of the things we like to do when we go to Red Rocks. But great venue. I'm fortunate to live just about exactly an hour exactly an hour from my house to red rock so we'll get out of there the music generally stops at 11 30 and I, i'll be home by 12 30. so uh anyway that, those are some of my red rocks memories and, and experiences saw the grateful dead there from 1983 and i was at the very last grateful dead show at red rocks in 1987 when they outgrew it because red rock surprisingly only holds 9,500 people it is not a large venue so it's too small for fish. It was too small for the Grateful Dead. Uh, the Rolling Stones, when they're here next weekend, uh, will be playing at Mile High Stadium. Obviously, they couldn't accommodate the Rolling Stones. Oh, boy, what a great place to see them it would be if you could pull it off. But, yeah, lots of elevation. So, as you know, Denver's called the Mile High City, 5,280 feet above sea level. You're going to pick up another 1,000 feet or 900 feet, put you about 6,000 feet above sea level. For the Flatlanders that fly in, like Larry from Chicago, not only do you have to climb yeah. a lot of stairs, but you also have to get used to the change in altitude and the thin air. So it is a workout. Right. You wake up right. the next day after a Red Rock show and you're sore. You've been climbing hundreds and hundreds of stairs. So it's a physical workout as well as a great musical experience. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there, Jim. It really is. But what you touched on there is interesting, and I heard some interesting stories this last time when I was out there, and, and I guess I never really thought of it this way, right, but that uh, that Red Rocks uh, is really considered, you know, it is considered a national, or certainly a national treasure, a city treasure, and all of that kind of stuff, and that the idea behind Red Rocks, I think you mentioned it originally, was uh, symphonies and classical music and places for families to go and and my understanding, and of course, it wasn't unique to Red Rocks. It happened in a lot of places. Fans got more popular, but the Deadheads and the Fishheads and a lot of these other, you know, the, the bands got so large that the concern was not even just whether or not they could get into the show for free, but the potential damage they were doing to this, you know, very special natural resource just by 
flood of people coming in and the waste and the trash and everything that would get left behind, that they really had to, as a matter of preservation, say that certain bands just couldn't play there anymore. Yep, that's true. My story of the last Grateful Dead concert there, which was in August of 1987, when there was too many people to get in, and there was for those Dead shows, there was for Fish shows. Fish got banned there. But then they let them come back after the hiatus. But they would let the kids, I call them kids, the deadheads and so, so forth, get on the hill up above the st- uh, up above Red Rocks. There's a, another geological formation. You can climb up that hill if you're in shape and maybe not see the stage, but still hear the music. So that's how they handled the overflow crowd. And deadheads, being industrious people that they are, figured out that they could light some campfires on that hill while they listened to the concert. And I remember uh, a fireman with a bullhorn at the back of Red Rocks shouting to the kids up on the hill, put the fires out, put the fires out. (laughs) Colorado in August, everything was dry as sagebrush. It was a real hazard. And of course, the deadheads didn't put the fires out. And the firemen had to hike up there with their shovels and axes and put the fires out. But that is one of the reasons that the Grateful Dead performed their last show there in August of 1987. But one of my other great memories of that show is the last song that the Grateful Dead played was Knocking on Heaven's Door, Bob Dylan's song. And all the kids came down from that hillside and there's a round parking lot right now. And today it's a handicapped parking lot at the top of Red Rocks. Um, And they came down to that round parking lot and all the deadheads were dancing in the headlights of the cop cars to knocking on heaven's door and that was the end of the grateful wow. dead's rooms at red rocks now I on guess another right show, at some point uh, we're running out of time on this show but on another show i'll tell you the stories of telluride which happened two days after those shows so the grateful dead played oh, I, I remember those august, too yep august of uh 87 they shut, uh, they did tuesday they wednesday shut down the town of telluride right yep to, uh, tuesday wednesday thursday okay. were red rock shows we had a day off Friday and drove the eight hours out to Telluride, Saturday and Sunday shows at Telluride. And I've got lots of great stories about Telluride that I'll save for another show. That'll be great. I want to hear all of those, too. We, we've got a lot of good things coming up, Kim, in the future uh, for our, for our uh, listeners. We've got some great musical stuff uh, that you and I have been kicking around. Uh, certainly with the Fish shows coming up, there's going to be a lot to talk about there. Um, I believe uh, well, a lot of Palooza is going on here in Chicago right now, but... I, I have to confess that maybe I've just grown a little too old. I, I haven't been to Lollapalooza in a few years, but uh, maybe someday I'll be tempted to go back. But we're certainly going to have a lot to talk about on the marijuana side. My goodness, there's stuff happening everywhere all the time. We're about to get the rules and regs in Illinois that are going to really outline what can and cannot be done in the adult use program. I know other states are looking at a number of issues that are coming down the line. So I think we will have no shortage of topics. Uh, for uh, listeners who want to keep listening. We hope you will. Okay, everybody. Jim and Larry saying over and out. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 
Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Elland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.